Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. The gospel reading for tonight is from Matthew chapter 4, and it is the traditional gospel reading for this cycle of the lectionary on the first Sunday in Lent. We're beginning a new series for this pre-Holy Week season of Lent. The series is called, We're Gonna Need a Bigger Boat. And the way this is gonna work over the next several weeks is we're gonna read the stories in Matthew 4, 5, and 6 the very earliest days of Jesus's ministry, the way Matthew tells it. But we're going to be reading it with an awareness that the holiest week, that is to say the week of Jesus's last supper with his friends, his arrest, his trial, his execution, that week is coming. So we're reading these early stories anticipating the end of his ministry. It's just six weeks away. It's a countdown starting tonight. And we'll be asking what we see in Matthew's account of the very start of his work that foreshadows the end that is coming, like a shark fin just visible gliding through the surface of the water. Dunna, dunna. I bet Nathan can do it. Dunna. <laughs> Steph's got it. It's, com- <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. So listen with those ears if you can. A six, weeks count- six week countdown to the end of his ministry. But here we are at the very beginning. Indeed, Jesus in Matthew 3 has just been baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. He is still dripping wet at the top of Matthew chapter 4. And that's where we begin tonight. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came 
and waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A content consideration for this sermon tonight. The sermon relies on a discussion of voluntary food restriction. If that calls up anything dangerous or painful for you, please take care of yourself appropriately, including finding something else to do for the next, I don't know, 16, 17 minutes. On the 10th of January this year, several dozen inmates in prisons across Texas began a coordinated hunger strike, refusing all forms of nourishment for their bodies. Their goal, to protest the overuse of solitary confinement in the Texas carceral system, or restrictive housing, as the state euphemistically calls it. There are currently over 3,000 men kept in solitary confinement cells in Texas prisons for 22 or 23 hours a day. Most of them are held there because of previous gang affiliations, not because of punishable offenses committed inside the prison. 138 of those men have lived more than 20 years in solitary confinement. We who could hardly bear the isolation and boredom of COVID restrictions, of just having to stay home and watch Netflix for all those many months, still cannot imagine the immense psychological cost of being caged in such small spaces for so very long. As late as February 6th, almost a month after the hunger strike's beginning, prisoners' rights advocates in our state counted 22 prisoners still refusing food, though the Texas Department of Criminal Justice officially had record of only six. It is believed that by now, 46 days after the strike began, all prisoners are now voluntarily receiving food. And they are all still in solitary confinement. History shows that hunger strikes are rarely, if ever, effective in bringing about systemic change. Why do it then? Why suffer the consequences of depriving your body of the nourishment it needs for such a long time? It would require such a massive expenditure of strength of will to keep it up. For what? We might well ask the same of Jesus, refusing all forms of nourishment for his body for 40 days after his baptism. The Bible says he was fasting, I know. Fasting for a day or two here or there is a time-honored tradition among the religious. The benefits are well known. It frees up the time you would have spent procuring and preparing meals so you can spend that time in prayer and contemplation. It frees up the money you would have spent on food so you can give more money to the poor. 
It induces a sense of solidarity with people who are hungry without choosing it. Fasting for a short time increases your compassion for your fellow human beings and deepens your awareness of dependence on God alone for your sustenance. But fasting for 40 days? Well, I haven't done it or anything close to it. And to be honest, I can't imagine any real spiritual benefit from it. We know that God does not require or even desire that we prove our love through self-induced suffering. We know that there is no extra congratulation, no higher heaven for those who demonstrate their devotion via pain. When you refuse nourishment for a week or two or a month or more, well, that feels less like a practice of piety fast and more like a political protest hunger strike to me. So what if we read the story of Jesus' 40 days in the desert that way? Less like he's a spiritual endurance athlete, a super-religious superhuman showing us how the pros do it, more like he's an activist practicing peaceful resistance to the powers that be. Not only later when he rides into Jerusalem on the back of an ass in a satirical mockery of royal military parades, but now, at the very beginning, still dripping with Jordan River water, already taking a stubborn stand with a hunger strike against the oppressive systems of his time and place, less like a VRP, a very religious person, and more like a criminal jailed for offenses against the state. Because, look, at his baptism, the capital V, voice of God, has named him and claimed him the Son of God, God's own agent on earth. And while that sounds very clear to us, we who read with 2,000 years of hindsight, it was still pretty much wide open for Jesus to figure out what that Son of God gig was going to mean concretely right there on the Palestinian ground. The temptations in the desert can thus be understood as potential job descriptions for his son of godness. I mean, that's exactly how two out of three of them are articulated anyway. If you are the son of God, well, if he is, there's really no limit to how that power could be leveraged in this world. If you are the son of God, turn these rocks into bread is one possibility not just for filling his own hungry belly, but for all the potential to fill all the hungry bellies all across the world. A ministry that promised to end world hunger would surely guarantee him a massive following, the kind of fame that would catapult him to superstardom. And there would be no question of anybody's faith. I mean, who wouldn't profess belief in a vending machine Messiah? But Jesus resists the easy get. Nah, he says, what do you think I'm doing out here? I'm seeing how long I can live without bread, see? Turns out it's longer than you think. My hunger 
is my weapon against the assumption that people will only love me if I give them exactly what they want all the time. I reject the imprisonment of my own hunger and everybody else's. I won't be enslaved to the endless reiteration of getting calories to people's bodies. It can't be about that. So no, no rocks into bread, not today, not any day. Okay, point taken, says the adversary. How about this? If you are the son of God, go big or go home. How about a one-time publicity stunt? Dive off the tippy top of the temple and let everybody ogle that phalanx of angels that will surely swoop in to save you. They'll go gaga for you, guaranteed, and they'll probably pay to see you do it again. But Jesus, well, you know. His ministry won't be flashy, it won't be loud, it won't be a spectacle. He's just planning to walk from one place to another place, slow and steady, meeting people along the way, discerning the deepest need of the person standing right in front of him, mostly one at a time. And remember, he'll ask most of them not to publicize who did it. I'm not really into self-promotion, he says. I'm not a capitalist. I'm not buying eyeballs in your attention economy. God does not seek market share. All right, all right, I think I get it, his antagonist says. It's a lot of work to administrate an end to world hunger, even if you can make bread out of rocks. And the last second temple dive rescue routine would get old after a while, sure. What about this? I'll just give it to you. All the power over everybody, everywhere. You can have it all for nothing if you'll just tell me you want it. Just say it. Acknowledge that it's mine, only mine, no one else's, mine alone. And say you'd like to have it. No effort on your part, all reward, no risk. What do you say? Uh-uh. Jesus says, it's not even yours to give, dum-dum. Y'all are out here exchanging pieces of metal you dug out of the ground, notarizing papers that say you can give and take that ground as your own. I reject the premise. You don't own anything. Go on, get out of here. I got what I came for. I got to go home. And what was it he came for? What did he get out of his 40-day hunger strike, his nearly six weeks of sunburnt suffering? On the way to answering that question, let me ask another one. How do we even know what happened out there in the desert? If it was just Jesus out there, I mean, with the occasional guest appearance by the no-name bad idea generator who surely didn't tell anybody about his three-to-nothing humiliation by an emaciated scarecrow of a man, how did Matthew or any of the gospelers have any idea that it ever happened at all? I mean, if it was a religious fast, an act of pious devotion to express his trust in God, Jesus technically shouldn't have told anybody about it, right? In a few weeks, we'll read a part of the Sermon on the Mount where he says exactly that, that when you fast for the sake of spiritual contemplation, you should do it in secret. It's private. Because if you show off your spirituality, you pretty much ruin it. 
But if it wasn't a fast, those 40 days in the desert, but a hunger strike, an act of peaceful protest against an unjust, amoral regime that exploits rather than cares for the people entrusted to it, well, then he would need it to be known. Jesus himself would have to sit his followers down one night and say, listen up, fellas, I got a story to tell you that's going to help you understand what you've gotten yourself into with me. And then he would tell them about his 40 days of resistance. His 40 days of saying absolutely not to all the ways the empire expects us to behave. All the things empire expects us to want. The empire expects us to buy people's loyalty by making them feel immediately better all the time. The empire expects us to crave attention and do whatever it takes to get it. The empire expects us to believe that the empire has got what we need so that we'll play by its rules, transact in its economy. But Jesus, in the desert, on a hopeless hunger strike, goes up against all those expectations, embodying a hard pass to all the seductions of the imperial system. His empty belly and screaming cells are his non-participation in the system, his hell no to its repeated insistence that he play by its rules. Like inmates in Texas prisons, he doesn't have much else to leverage, just his own human body and a voluntary test of his strength of will. And like inmates in Texas prisons, I suspect Jesus knew that his hunger strike wasn't actually going to change the system he was protesting. But at the end of it, he was going to know. And we who heard him tell about it were going to know that he had what it takes to resist. That he was his own person, not a pawn of the state that he could indeed live this life as a gravity-bound human being without getting sucked into the quicksand of oppression. Because at the very beginning of his ministry, that's what he was getting ready to ask his followers to do, see? Asking all of them, asking all of us to resist with all our might anything that diminishes our humanity or anybody else's to say, hell no, to unjust and amoral systems that think they own this world and the people of it. And he just wouldn't ask us to do that if he hadn't already done it. And he, by God, wasn't going to wait to the very end to see if he was strong enough to see it through. And yeah, if that story got out, Jesus on hunger strike out there beyond the river, 40 days of testing himself against the heaviest artillery the empire could fire his way. Well, that would scare the shit out of the powers that be. That's a threat they would definitely be looking to uh, neutralize as quickly as possible. It's also the kind of story that if it got out, would inspire generations of followers to find their own strength of will empowered by the spirit of that self-same Jesus to tell the powers that be to take a hike. And here we are. Maybe his hunger strike achieved exactly what he intended. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. 
This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Rev. Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.